And I'm going to have a couple questions for you guys throughout our time. We're going to we're going to have what we call a sermon, okay, guys? And what we're going to do is we're going to look at a passage of the Bible like you do in your Sunday school class. And we're going to look at what it says to us. And we're going to try to apply it to our lives. We call that a sermon or preaching. So I'm glad that you guys are here for that. But before we get into it, I want to do a little uh, quick announcement time. Uh, first, right after our time together uh, here in this room, we're going to have a church meal and uh, we're going to have that all together. I think we're going to be outside. There's going to be meat. So we're going to be in here, actually. Okay, cool. We're going to grill outside, though, right? We can't grill inside. That's illegal. Um, we're going to grill outside and eat inside. Uh, I just was corrected on that. But if you like meat um, and other things, um, we'll have plenty of that for you. So please stick around. Everyone's invited. Uh, even if you uh, were not able to bring anything, we'd love for you to stick around and have dinner together. Second, I wanted to say uh, welcome to our Prince of Peace friends. Uh, we are glad that you're here with us today and certainly want you to enjoy your time with us. And we are praying for you. I hope you're praying for us as well. And we're grateful that you're here. Uh, the last announcement I wanted to give today is that we are going to have a student city group meeting. Uh, so if you're interested as a junior high student parent or a high school student parent in knowing what the next uh, season of life is for our youth ministry or student ministry, we'd love for you to be a part of that. That's August 20th. We have uh, some great leadership lined up for that, and we're looking forward to uh, telling you a little bit more about that. If you're visiting with us, we'd love for you to fill out the Connect card. It's right in front of you, so please do that as well, and you can put that at our information table or drop it in our offering box on your way out. And there's some other goodies in the weekly for you to check out. So with this, why don't we stand together one more time? Kids, why don't you stand with me too? We're going to read God's word. And there's a story in the Old Testament about when the word of God was read, the people of God stood in respect and in awe of what God had told them. So we're in Philippians chapter 3 today, verse 12 through 16. And I want you to listen closely to the words of the Lord. Not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think, uh, think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful to come into uh, this place and worship you in spirit and in truth. And we know that your scripture is truth. We hold it high above us. Uh, scripture interprets us. We don't get to uh, interpret it. We, we stand before you in your word and we submit. And so God, today I pray that as we talk about regrets that we may have in life, that you would show us a better way to live that you would show us a better way to uh, interact with each other and to have hope in the cross and Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Give us your power today, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have a seat. I need to back up. There we go. Hey, uh... Kids, this is for you. I usually ask some of the adults questions. I'm going to ask you questions today. So if you're in like kindergarten or preschool through fifth or sixth grade or, or even older, I want to ask you a question. Raise your hand if you like sports. Do you like sports? Raise your hand. 
All right. Very good. Very good. What sports do you like? Somebody yell out a sport that you like right here. Soccer. Excellent. Softball? Is that what? Football. Okay. Now we're talking. Hey, right here. Basketball. Are you good at basketball? Who's your favorite basketball player? You don't know. Okay. It's kind of like that Bible lesson. We all don't know. Oh, no, I'm just kidding. Right here, right here. What's your favorite sport? Baseball. Baseball. I think we've covered the gamut. Any other sports? River? What's your favorite sport? What'd she say? Frisbee. Ultimate Frisbee tomorrow night. That's a good sport. I like it too. One more. Baseball. Excellent. America's pastime. Well, you guys are in luck today because we're going to talk about someone who wrote a letter to a church in the city of Philippi, and this someone was a sports fan. Not many people know that about the Apostle Paul, okay? but he was a sports fan. And I know this because a lot of times when he talks to us in the Bible, he uses examples from sports to tell us how to live our life and what God tells us to do in terms of his truth and what we are supposed to think and believe. So Paul is a sports fan. And he uses a lot of examples from the athletic world of his day to teach us lessons in our day. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today. And uh, I don't know if you've had a coach, but I've had a lot of coaches in my life. And some of my coaches... Um, say this a lot. Maybe you've heard this. If you've heard this in your soccer team or baseball or football or basketball team, raise your hand after I say this. Have you ever heard your coach say, I don't want you to get to the end of the season and have regrets. Anybody hear that before? Yeah. What do you think that means? You're not for sure. Keep thinking we're going to get there right about 1130. I think our brains are going to pop into gear. Okay. What does that mean? Anybody? Anybody else want to try to answer that? What does it mean that we don't want to have any regrets? It means that we want to do our best and really try hard and help our team win and do the best that our team can do, right? And I heard that over and over and over again. Give your all so that when you look back, you have zero regrets. Now, this is a question for the adults because you're a little older. The younger people won't understand this. Is it remotely possible to go through life without regrets? And all God's people said, no, "No." right? We're going to have regrets in life. And so we're going to talk a a little bit about this. I I know that I have some personal experiences with regrets. Um, My theory was as I would get older and wiser, I would have fewer and fewer regrets that I would perfect my life, that I would have a spreadsheet that told me everything I needed to do. And if I followed all the rules, I would not have any regrets. But the truth is this, in this world, regrets are part of the struggle of living in a sinful world. Now, is there a way to live as a Christian without regrets? I would say absolutely, but not for the reason that you might be thinking. Regrets are, according to the dictionary, a sense of loss or sorrow for something you did or something you experienced in the past. So sins that are committed against you and sins that you have committed towards others can certainly lead to regrets. 
I have children that are getting ready. They're not children. They're, they're adults. They're young adults now. But they're getting ready to go off to college. And I can remember many times things I've either said or done that I wish I could take back. Moments with my children that I could say, man, I wish I would have you know, played a game with them instead of watched Sports Center for the umpteenth time. So lots of regrets. And Paul would say those are, are normal. But for the follower of Christ, you can actually live without a sense of loss or sorrow. And he's going to tell us how that is possible, I believe, in this passage. What does Paul say to do when we don't live up to the standard of Jesus, who was perfect and had no regrets, and we find ourselves beginning to wallow in them? Number one, I think verse 12 of this passage says, we need to be self-aware. Okay. Now, culturally, as Americans... As North Americans, as Westerners, so to speak, in, in our world and in our civilization, we would say, I think we are very self-aware, which proves that we are probably the least self-aware people on the planet, okay? See how that works? It's kind of a logical fallacy, but Paul says in verse 12 that we need to be self-aware in order to live a life without regrets. Let me read verse 12 to you again. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Self-awareness apparently is a very difficult thing to accomplish in our world on our own. We would claim it, but it is by our own standard. We are self-aware because in our world... We understand things perfectly. It's this kind of, of, of situation. It's my world, and I'm just glad you get to be a part of it. Have you had those situations before where you've defined what truth is, what the world looks like, what sin is, and what perfection looks like, and by your own standard, you are self-aware. You are a person who says, I've made my own way, I've done things in my world, and I understand things perfectly. Self-awareness is different than that. It's supposed to be in light of Jesus' perfection and and biblical truth. You can think you are something and you are not. Let me give you an example. Kids, this is really interesting. You'll like this. I have a big son right over here. You want to wave your hand or is that too embarrassing? He's 17. He's 6'1", about 225, okay? Now, I fancy myself... As a pretty good wrestler. No one mentioned that their favorite sport was wrestling, by the way. I'm very disappointed. Because I spent many hours in the gym wrestling. My dad was a wrestling coach. And as a part of wrestling, I feel like in a street fight, I could probably hold my own. That I could be a good wrestler, a good fighter. And so, because of that, because of those skills, I still think that I can take my son in a wrestling match. But one very brief sparring session recently told me differently. That is not the case. Now, I hope he wasn't listening because I just admitted that my son is stronger than I am and you're never supposed to admit that. But it's true. I, I can think of myself in light of my own understanding of the world, my own abilities, my own creativity, that I have arrived, I have made it, that I have accomplished something. And Paul says this, Paul's method of living with no regrets is rooted in a biblically informed self-awareness. See, that's why I said even in my prayer, Scripture 
doesn't, doesn't stand beneath me. I don't stand on Scripture and look through it and try to manage it and coerce it into the way I want it to be. It speaks. God speaks and, and the world listens. The revelation of God is complete. It is true. We are not over it. We are under it. We submit to it. And Paul's method of living with no regrets is rooted in a biblically informed self-awareness. I have not obtained, he says, the resurrection or perfection, but Jesus has on my account. Okay? So what, what that means is I cannot arrive in full self-awareness. I cannot arrive in and of myself in a place where I've earned God's favor and He gives me what I rightly deserve. What I rightly deserve, according to His truth, is separation from Him. But because of the account of Jesus, that's an important word, the account of Jesus, His account is full, His account is perfect. He gives that to me when He saves me. And because of that, I am made right with God, and I can have no regrets because I am a biblically informed, self-aware person. It's by Jesus' power that I am made new. It's not just when I behave properly, but because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead and His power to resurrect my dark and broken heart, I can fully be aware that, like Paul says in Romans 7, wretched man that I am, why do I continue in this sin? And then I can say later in the book of Romans, Paul says, I've been forgiven, I've been made new, and Jesus' sacrifice, his account, is given to me on my behalf because of his perfection. I am right with God. There's another thing that I play, uh, plays into Paul's uh, living without regret, regrets. It is this. To live without regrets, you need a blessed forgetfulness and focus. Verses 13 through 14. Let me read those for us real quickly. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made up my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, many of you don't know it, but the fall, which actually starts early and earlier for me, the fall means pretty much one thing, at New City, you're going to hear a lot of a particular kind of analogy, example, or story in our sermons. Anybody guess? Youth football, baby. Yeah. I coach a youth football team. We started this week. They're looking good, by the way. Um, looking really good. But I coach a team, and one of the things that I try to teach my team and my coaches and myself, so it's something that I have to remember myself, is that when you have a situation in the game that doesn't go your way, you miss a block, you miss a tackle, you don't run a play the correct way, the, the main thing that you have to do is go to the next play. And so we'll just say that. We'll yell it out. Next play. Don't worry about that. I know that you held for the 13th time and we are penalized 10 yards. Don't worry about it. Let's go to the next play. The contrast that, that I see in my own life, instead of going to this next play, I have some of the, the opposite things going on in my life. Maybe you can relate to this. I have a wretched inability to change the past. I have tried. Anybody try to change the past? Some of you maybe even have gone to the extent of building a time machine to try to change your past. You have a wretched inability to change the past. And with that, I have an exquisite skill to wallow in my past. 
it's really despairing at times. To, to not be able to change the things that I wish I could take back, the regrets that I have, and then this, this skill to wallow in it. Is that you? Is that something that, that guides your life? You are locked in your past and you have this amazing skill not to forget about it, not to move on from it, but to wallow in it. Uh, Paul would say, and he says this clearly throughout his letters, that that will leave you in a place of spiritual and missional paralysis. One of the reasons why the church, and maybe um, you don't understand, understand this, and I wish I didn't understand it, but I read the research. One of the reasons why the church, I believe, is dying in North America, there's many reasons, but one of those reasons is a paralysis a spiritual and missional paralysis of being mired in your past and wallowing in it. And it, 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 it's rooted in a lack of belief in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. So what we try to do is we try to get around it. We try to cut corners. We try to make a new way. And Paul would say, again, be self-aware. Know that you are going to continue to sin. God's Spirit has been provided to you to fight sin, to overcome it, to kill it, as it says in Colossians. You can get beyond it. You can live a life that is meaningful and purposeful and in joyful relationship with Jesus Christ. But it's only through the resurrection power of him. Paul says that there is something good about forgetfulness, about the things that lie behind. Now, this is an interesting thing for Paul to say because if Paul were to go on, you know, one of these shows during the daytime and I just spaced the name like a Jerry Springer thing or Dr. Phil, that's what I was thinking of, Dr. Phil. And if Dr. Phil were to have Paul on his proverbial couch and begin to introspect with Paul about his past, he would say, hey, Paul, um, you forgetting about your past is probably re- a really interesting thing because let's, let's look at your past. Okay, let's look at it. Number one, um, you committed some terrible sins against people who were followers of Christ. Before you became a Christian, you were killing them. You were persecuting them. Why is it so easy for you to forget that which lies behind you? And and then they might say, and your spiritual resume, according to your Jewish tradition, your spiritual resume was immaculate. Paul even says that he obeyed all the law, 600 plus of them. That he was a a very uh, legalistically spiritual, not, not real spiritual, but a legalistically spiritual person whose resume was extraordinary and the depth of his sin was equally as extraordinary. And yet he says, I forget about the things that lie behind. No, I don't think Paul is saying sin wantonly because you can know that you can just forget about it. Like we live in that world, right? I know a lot of followers of Christ who say, I'm not too worried about my sin. You know, for the umpteenth time, I've done exactly what God says not to do in his word. I'm not too worried about it because he says to forget what lies behind. I can just move on from that. That's not necessarily what Paul is saying. What he is saying is that your spirit has been renewed by the spirit, the Holy Spirit, who is continually renewing you and washing you as white as snow. 
that doesn't give me a heart or a mindset that I can go do whatever I want and just forget about it. It makes me want to bow down in submission to my Lord Jesus, who says this is the way life should be lived. And I know because he says so, that is the best joy, that's the most joy that I can find. We should not sin wantingly knowing that we can just forget about it. We should sin knowing that it grieves the heart of God. And that it is something that we need to be in confession of and repentance of and believing in the grace of God to forgive us, which propels us because of our love for Him and His love for us to obey Him in an ever-deepening way. But Paul would say this, your regrets about your past will kill the vibrancy of your future mission with Christ. Paul also says that there's something great about forward focus. And when he talks about, I I strain for, or I look forward to what lies ahead, it's an intense uh, understanding of what is going on. It's a straining forward. It's a it's the, the view of a, a marathon runner getting to that last six miles. Who's ran a marathon in here before? God bless you. Man, I haven't. Okay. I, I haven't run one. I haven't run a half one. Uh, not a quarter. I think maybe an eighth. What's an eighth of 26? Like three miles? I think I've run three miles before. But you know that last six miles is where you hit the wall. And when Paul says he strains forward to what lies ahead, he's giving us the picture of a marathon runner who's at mile 20. And I I think I've heard this, and this is why I will never run a marathon, but I've heard at mile 20, your body begins to go into rigor mortis. Like you're, you're dead, but you're still alive. Okay. And the joints are stiffening up. The muscles are contracting and, and you are not in a good place But you continue forward because you know what lies ahead, the finish of the marathon. He says, I strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal. Let me give you some some pieces of hope of what lies ahead and what is the goal. And think of it with this marathon analogy in mind. What lies ahead and what is the goal? Let me tell you the first thing that lies ahead. For all those who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Number one, relief. Relief. I don't know about you, but sometimes relief is just that that feeling of, man, once I get to this place, I can let go. I can calm down my soul. I can, I can give away all of the thoughts and the busyness of life. It's just so so wonderful to know that there is a relief coming at the end of the straining. Um, I think about in the marathons, those watering stations. And especially the very last one where you cross that finish line. You have the euphoria of finishing the race. Even though your body is about ready to go into convulsions. And someone comes with that that glass of water, and it's like the perfect temperature, even if it's 98 degrees. It's just wonderful to be able to drink that water. Followers of Christ have a relief that lies ahead. One of the fuels of the reason why, I I don't claim to be an evangelist, but I do believe every Christian is an evangelist. I don't claim to have the gift of evangelism, 
But every, uh, there are some Christians that have the gift of evangelism. One of the things that fires me up about telling other people about Jesus and what lies ahead for them if they know Christ is that they will have relief. The opposite of relief is a never-ending, straining, striving, stressful, horrid reality. I want relief. I want relief from the pains of this life, and I want relief from what is coming in the eternal, uh, eternal judgment that Jesus will reign over. So one thing that lies ahead is relief. Second thing, the goal, what lies ahead and what is the goal? You have a reward that lies ahead. You have the accomplishment of a goal, okay? Now, if you're running that marathon, I know some people who have ran several marathons and they've never finished them. They've gotten to mile 20 and they've said, I'm out. I, I, I eject. I can't run one step further. And so it propels them to run another one and another one and another one and they've never finished all 26 miles. And then I know one person who's ran several and in that final one that they, they, they quit after this, of course, but in that final one, they accomplished the goal. They finished the race. Can you imagine the euphoria of doing this year after year, not finishing, and all of a sudden you're able to finish that race, that marathon. There's a great reward that lies ahead. This is what it is for followers of Christ. The great reward that lies ahead, and we get glimpses of it in our life now, is the glory of God. It is not the, the mansion, the car, the career, the relationship, the money, the things that money will get. Your greatest joy and therefore your greatest reward is the glory of God. Sin isn't overlooked by Jesus. It is and will be destroyed by Jesus. But the glory of God will remain forever. The great part about heaven is, you know, we use many different analogies when we talk about what heaven will be like. Um, there will be a banquet table. I believe it's a literal banquet table. We'll get uh, an amazing amount of, of fare from the Lord Almighty as, as the head chef. I, I don't know what it'll look like, but I think there'll be a banquet table. I think it will be a, a, a euphoric existence where you experience the way life was meant to be before sin entered the world. I believe that heaven is a real place with real experiences, but the absolute over, uh, overreaching beauty and joy of heaven is the glory of God. It will propel you in bliss for eternity. Paul says there is something great about looking forward with an intensity towards that end goal and towards what lies ahead in spite of what is going on in your life right now. The prize is the victory won on the cross and the way for us to live our lives for God's glory in all that we do. That's why one of the reasons why I love the New City Catechism, by the way, we didn't write that nor produce the app, but we sure are going to benefit from them naming it the same as our church. Um, that was developed by a, a church in, in New York, Tim Keller, I believe, and some of his 
uh, folks develop that particular tool. But one of the things that it starts with, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Kids, you can learn that. You can be uh, and live a life. You can be a person that lives a life for the glory of God and all that you do. That and that alone can give you true joy. Paul finishes with this. Um, If you don't want to have regrets, be mature in your thinking. Verse 15 and 16. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Mature thinking. There's a, uh, a movie out about baseball called Moneyball with Brad Pitt. Anybody seen that? Brad Pitt makes some good movies, I got to say. But this one was especially good. I liked it. Baseball movie, of course. Anything to do with sports. If you want to see me cry, take me to a sports movie. Um, I will do that for you. But in, in that, he has this, uh, this line... And I think it's actually not a, not a great way to look at sports. But he says this, I hate losing more than I like winning. Man, that's kind of sad, right? Like winning is not nearly as enjoyable when we win. The, the amount of the emotion, the level of what I feel when we win doesn't even compare to the despair and the sadness I feel uh, when we lose. I think that's a bad way to approach sports, but there are coaches who have a philosophical uh, perspective on sports. They have a maturity in their thinking, and if you're around them long enough, they've been seasoned in their respective sport to know that it's not just about wins and losses. There's a whole process and journey that goes on that can grow us and develop us, but they have a, a perspective, a maturity in their thinking about sports. And this word, maturity, is a really interesting one. I, I, I didn't even know this until I studied for this passage this week. The word for maturity is teleios, T-E-L-E-I-O-S, or teleos, T-E-L-E-O-S, depending on how it's uh, uh, spelled and what manuscript. But maturity equals teleos. Teleos, or the root word of teleos, is the same word Jesus used on the cross When he said, it is finished. Maturity is not the color of your hair or the number of years that you've lived or the amount of things that you have done in life, the quote-unquote life experience. Maturity, according to the biblical understanding of it, is finishing. Is finishing. My son plays football for a a high school program, very successful high school program. And every uh, winter time, uh, they have this optional uh, uh, thing they call talio. And it's directly related to this word, to finish. And what the coaches are trying to communicate to their players is we need to be a football team that finishes what we start out to do in our games. When we get to quarter one and we're up by three touchdowns, or maybe we're behind by a touchdown, the game is not over. For the follower of Christ, your mission on this planet isn't over until the dirt is poured onto the box. That's when it is finished, but it is never finished for eternity for those folks. But Paul, when he talks about mature thinking, he is saying, 
Know the end game so that you can think through how to finish well. You can get on a trajectory that will lead to you finishing well. And he says, mature thinkers know their end game. They think through how to finish well. And they hold true to what they have attained in Christ. Let me tell you what you've attained in Christ and we'll finish with this. You have attained victory over sin, Satan, and death. And when Paul uses the word to attain to something or the idea of attaining to something, he is saying, live in line with this type of thinking. Live in line with the type of thinking and the type of way of life that Jesus tells us to live in the scriptures. That is a mature person. And I love what he says because this is a good thing for many of us, if not all of us, to remember. There are people who think otherwise. Let me just stop there for a moment because I got four minutes and I'm still way under time. Okay, so I'm going to utilize all of that four minutes. There are those of us who think otherwise. Let me, let me explain what he's saying here. There are those who think that maturity is doing things their own way. There are those who think maturity is having enough degrees behind their name that they have arrived at an intellectual position that is superior to everybody else and their understanding of the world is what trumps everything, including Scripture. Scripture, God's truth, His biblical truth, tells us that the only way to live is in line with the type of thinking that Jesus Christ gave us in the Scriptures. And those who think otherwise, dot, 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 ellipsis, God will reveal that to you also. Can I tell you how God reveals to you that your thinking is off? That you have put yourself on the throne and not Jesus? This is how he does it. Through self-inflicted pain and never-ending regrets. Now sometimes it's through growth out of your ignorance that God says, I'm going to teach you how to think through the study of God's word. But many times through the self-inflicted pain and through never-ending regrets, God teaches us to think otherwise. What do you regret today? What do you regret today? I don't care how old you are. I'm sure these young kids don't even know what the word regret means. Maybe they can spell it though, which is good. Praise the Lord for that. But as you've gotten older, there's some regrets. Do you realize that your regrets are leading to a spiritual and missional impotence? That God has a greater plan for your life than you could possibly imagine. And it doesn't matter how old you are, how long you've known the Lord, how big your Bible is, how many verses you have memorized. There is something great for you and your regrets are keeping you from God's best. Paul says, be self-aware to know that you're a sinner and that you need Christ and His attaining of salvation for you. He says also that you need to be mature in your thinking. 
You need to be mature in your thinking. You need to finish the race well through a thoughtfulness about God and His Word. And I would say this as uh, uh, our application. You need to be blessed by forgetfulness and an intense focus on what lies ahead. Now we come to the communion table. We practice communion through intinction. It's a fancy word which means you take the bread representing the body of Jesus that was broken for you. You dip it in the wine or the juice representing the blood that was shed for your forgiveness. The forgiveness of your sins, past, present, and future. It is completed in Christ. Will you, before you come to the table, if you're a follower of Christ, we invite you to come. We don't have a closed table only to our membership. If you know Jesus as Lord and Savior, you can come to our table, to this communion table, and partake in communion with us. And you can remember the body broken. You can remember the blood shed so that you can be blessed in your forgetfulness and you can move forward to what lies ahead. Let's pray. Jesus, I, I thank you for your death on the cross and the salvation that you attained for me and for those who know you as Lord and Savior. I know many times when I wake up in the morning and there is a regret, or many regrets on my mind, Satan can use that as a, as a foothold to keep me from enjoying the glory of God and the joy that I can have in a relationship with Him. And out of that joy, the, the mission that you have called your church to do, to go and make disciples in all the world, preaching the good news of Jesus Christ and teaching everyone to obey all that you have commanded and you are with us always to the very end of the age, that mission gets muddled and, and gray in my regrets. If you have died and rose from the grave, then you have the power to forgive. If you have promised forgiveness, we need only believe. We need only to confess and repent and believe in your mercies and your grace. And you wash us white as snow. Give us a new start today as we come to the communion table to remember that your resurrection power has accomplished everything on our behalf. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.